Wives, uh, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that as we come to this passage, that it just, it jumps out to us, Lord, at how removed our time and our culture is from when this was written. And Lord, these are difficult verses to work through because Uh, We and our world, our culture, has so many ideas of what this is saying or what it's not. And, And Lord, we ask that whatever our feelings are as we come to this passage, Lord, that your spirit, knowing our past, knowing ways we've struggled with these things, knowing the ways in which we've maybe been hurt by others, and our distrust, our skepticism, we pray that your spirit, as we just sung, would speak to each and every one of us your word, that your spirit would knock down these ideas that we have that aren't in line with your word, that your spirit would show us a glimpse of the beauty of a harmonious household that is serving the Lord with each person doing his or her part. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and honored. We pray that our church would reflect the beauty that Christ has given us. We pray that you would work among us, and we pray that you would be with each and every one of us, and even comfort us in this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's something incredibly satisfying about riding a well-tuned bicycle. I love the first ride I do after I've washed, given my bike a a thorough cleaning, got all the grease and grime and dirt, put a a fresh coat of chain lube on it, and then I go for that first ride. And and it is amazing because the, the bike just silently cruises along the pavement with this subtle hum of rubber tires on asphalt. And it brings such joy to be riding this just meticulously crafted machine. And when I push a lever to change one of the gears, there's this solid chunk as the chain precisely moves one space up the sprocket and you push more uh, more power to the pedals and start cruising even faster down the road. There's so much joy in using a well-tuned machine. One of the most annoying things, though, is when something is off on the bike, like the chain keeps skipping every couple pedal strokes, or the derailleur is constantly rubbing. It's silly, but like even just the sound of that can suck all of the joy out of what is supposed to be a fun bike ride. The sound is this constant reminder that something is not working right on the bike. Things aren't in harmony. 
Now, maybe you haven't ridden a bike for a while. You know, maybe you haven't ridden one since you were a kid, but I guarantee there are other things in your life that when it works well, it brings you joy, and when it doesn't, it, it, it gives you these, you know, just feelings of stress or disharmony. Maybe a garage door is what does that for you, right? Your garage door, every time you push the button, it creaks and moans as it tries to get up, reminding you that something's not set right. Or maybe it's a door in your home that sticks and you've got to give it an extra pull every time you try to open it, or the latch is off so you've got to lift it up every time you want to close it. When things are working in harmony, it brings joy to your life. But when they aren't, it is this surprising source of frustration. And our passage is getting at something similar. It's showing the harmony of a Christian household. How when things are running well, the Christian home is a place of joy and delight as each part plays its role to make something beautiful. Now, I realize that that statement might be hard for some of us to swallow because I read this passage, right? And I don't know your reaction to it, but maybe you're like, you know, why did I come to church this Sunday, right? Or, or what is going on here? This seems regressive. This certainly goes against our culture. But I want you to stick with me because what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage to see what it's saying, what it's not, and hopefully get some picture of the beauty and the harmony that comes when everything in a Christian home is running smoothly. And the question I want you to ask yourself is this, is there harmony in my home? Is there harmony in my home, whatever your home looks like? And we're going to look at this three ways, in marriage, with our kids, and in work. And for the ancient uh, world, all of these things were really contained within the household. The household was kind of the basic economic unit of, uh, of society, and, and so that's why we see these three things here. Well, first, let's look at marriage. Before I go into the details, I want to cover just a few kind of general things about the list as a whole. Uh, first, if you've read other New Testament letters, you'll realize that in the same place, there's often some instructions like this. Why do so many New Testament letters have this type of thing? Well, some of it was cultural. Other Greek and Roman writings of the time and before that included what we would call a list of household rules that included these same three spheres. These were kind of the main parts of your household, your marriage, your kids, and your slaves. This also seems to be rooted in Aristotle's idea, who came you know, before this was written, that the household was the basic unit of the state. And so a strong household was crucial for a strong state or country. Now, these Christian household rules, then, do reflect, in a large part, the culture they came out of, that early Roman culture, but we'll see there's also some twists in them. Another reason why these lists are so common in New Testament letters is probably because so many of the first churches were house churches. And so, for, in order for there to be a good church, there needed to be a good home in which the church could meet in. The second thing I want you to see here is don't miss how Paul has instructions for each individual in the relationship, the wife and the husband, the child and the parent, the slave and master. Paul is concerned with a harmonious household, right? He's giving the instructions for uh, how these pieces all fit together. Everybody plays a part to make sure all the gears are connect correctly meshing. For instance, over the years, 
you know, bikes have gone from like a single speed to a three speed to now the best you can get is 12 speed on the back of your wheel, 12 speed cassette. Now, you don't want to take a chain that was made for a nine-speed bike and try to put it on a 12-speed bike. It's not going to work. Even if you bought the most expensive titanium 12-speed chain and then tried to stick it on a 10-speed bike, it's actually going to make the bike worse because they're not meant to work together that way. And it's the same thing here. Paul is saying this is how everything fits together so the gears mesh and there's harmony. That's what's notable about this list compared to other ancient Greek and Roman writings. Paul is not looking here to create some sort of system of oppression, but actually showing how everybody plays his or her part in a harmonious household. This is one of the ways that these rules were different from other household rules in Greek and Roman culture. Paul, unlike all these other writings, addresses the wives, the children, and the slaves. And he addresses them as people who have autonomy and control over how they act. He's addressing them as humans. In fact, he addresses each one of them first before getting to the other half. Some have even wondered, this would have really jumped out at those early readers, and some have wondered, was this a way of Paul showing that these people are spiritual equals before God by talking to them first? Other writings of that time didn't address the person who's on the subordinate side of that relationship, and they often condoned any sort of coercion or even violence to control the behavior of those under you. Beating your slave was fine. Whatever you need to do to get them to obey. Then the third thing to notice is the motivation for doing this is God. And this raises the stakes, whatever side of the equation you're on. Whether you're at the bottom of the totem pole or the top of the totem pole, you have a master in heaven who sees everything and will set all things right. God is the ultimate check and balance in, re- in rectifying any injustice out there. So let's then look into the details, husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. First, what does that word submit mean? We have a lot of baggage. It it tends to be a a negative term today. Well, let's let Scripture define it for us. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or to governors. So we are all called to submit to our governing authorities. 1 Peter 5.5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. The younger people, we should submit to those who are older than us. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a a sense in which all Christians submit to each other. Lastly, 1 Corinthians uh, 15.28, when he has done this, then the Son, Jesus himself, will be made subject, same word for submit, to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So it's saying that in the end, all of creation will be in submission to Christ, and Christ will be in submission to his Father. So here's what we can understand from this, these couple passages. Submission does not mean inferiority. And one of the, the, the classic places to look at this is with Jesus. Jesus submitted to the Father. And yet at the same time, we would say that Jesus is fully God equal with the Father. So to submit to something does not mean you're inferior to them or of less worth. 
Those who are older are not of greater worth than someone who's younger, but we submit to those who are older than us as a sign of respect, not a sign of inferiority. So the call to submit, first off, is a voluntary choice that you make to honor another person in a particular role or place in your life. We also see here that every single person has a place where they must submit to somebody else. No Christian is free from submission in their life. In, in one place or another, every one of us is called to submit to somebody else, whether it's someone elder than us, someone, our parents, the government, peers in certain instances, and for all of us, God. And one of the best ways for those of us who are in roles where other people might be submitting to us is to model what godly submission looks like as we submit to those that are above us, right? Let us model what it looks like. There cannot be a disconnect in what you demand from someone underneath you, and you do not live that same way, you know, or show that same respect to those above you. So what does this mean for wives? I think it's summed up very well in simply this, showing deference to your husband. It doesn't mean that you never make your opinions known. In fact, you need to make your opinions known because we're going to see here in a minute, part of the husband's role is to take your desires, your fears, your thoughts, and so understand them that he makes them his desires, fears, and thoughts. It may mean, but in the end, what it means is deferring to your husband if you're married, to let him lead, to even in, in some situations reminding him that he is called to lead in this area. But note also the specificity. Paul doesn't write, you know, women submit to men in general, but I think the NIV translation is helpful here. Wives, submit yourselves. So this is something that you choose to do, that not something that is forced upon you, to your husbands. One commentator notes, it appears that widowed, divorced, and women of independent means could evidently function as heads of their own households. In the case of Lydia, Phoebe, and presumably Nympha and Colossae herself, who's referenced in chapter 415, he's saying there were households in the ancient, in the Christian church right, that were run by women. And this seems to be condoned, whether they were single women or independent women, whatever it might be. What this means is you aren't called to go around and submitting to every man you come in contact with. But marriage is where you willingly put yourself into the arms of another and say, I give myself to you. I choose to submit to your leadership, to your care for our household. So if you're considering marriage, it, it, this is a key question that you cannot ignore with that person that you want to get married to. Is this someone that I would be willing to follow? Is this someone I would be willing to submit to? This means there's going to be a particular vulnerability. You're in some way giving your heart to another person to tend. Is this someone that I trust to care for my heart well? And if you can't answer that with a yes you shouldn't marry that person. Lastly, notice, as is fitting in the Lord. Like all earthly submission, it's not a total submission, but it has limits. 
You, you don't submit to the point of just disobeying God. In every human relationship, there are times when you shouldn't submit to someone in authority. Well, what is the husband's role in all this to, to create that harmony? Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If someone is going to give you their heart, put their livelihood in your hands, that is a great responsibility and privilege to care for their heart. To have your wife then take this position of submission, it's kind of like her taking off all of her protective armor and everything that she has to, to, you know, that she's used in her life to keep herself safe, taking it all off in front of you and giving her heart to you, exposing her heart, her soul, her life to you. And that is a great privilege, but it also means it gives the potential to do great harm for that other person. And because of men's, our greater strength, economic security, other things, it is so easy to take advantage of that strength and be harsh with our wives and get away with it. But God sees it all. He has no partiality at the end of the passage. What a comfort that is, right? Because so often, justice is thwarted because of partiality. Because someone can't be heard, someone doesn't have a way to be heard, someone isn't trusted, or someone has greater standing in the community, and so we tend to believe them. What does it look like to love your wife, as Paul writes here? Well, he told us just a few verses prior, verse 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So husbands, are you showing kindness and humility, and gentleness, and patience towards your wife. That's a key thing in loving her. It doesn't matter how much money you're making to allow her to do all these great things. It doesn't matter how hard you're working, how much you're sacrificing. If the way that you care for your wife is not marked by humility, and gentleness, and patience, it is hard to say that you are loving your wife. And this leads to the second part of the sentence. Do not be harsh with them. Many commentators note that that word harsh could maybe just as well be translated as embittered, and it seems to fit a little better. Because think about it. If you are a husband, you're maybe uh, working hard, the sole breadwinner, and maybe you're working hard in a job that you don't like, and you're making a lot of sacrifices for your wife and your family to have a good life. But then your wife is critical about something or doesn't like something or you don't feel like she's respecting you like she should because of all the things that you're doing for your family. It is very easy for you to grow embittered towards her, right? Well, don't you see everything that I'm doing? Don't you see all the sacrifices I'm making? And what is so often in our, easily our heart lends itself to is what? Then you feel all the more, I need to double down on my authority. I need to enforce my will on her which only results in more self-righteous resentment, and she probably won't respond well to that. Right? Love is not something you can demand. But what husbands are called to do is to give ourselves to her, to love her, to have compassion and humility and love mark every interaction that you have with your wife, and when that defines how you treat her, you will become a man she is willing to open up her heart to and follow and entrust her life with. And when husbands and wives are following these instructions, the marriage works like a finely tuned bike. 
Everything is running smoothly and it's joyous and it's beautiful. Now, you probably have a bunch of questions running around your head right now, like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this? Right? Or what does this mean? Or can I do that? And I can't answer all those here and be happy to talk about them more later. But what I want to do is just give you a little picture of what I think God designed marriage to be. But before we do that, we need to be cautious whenever we look at these passages. Uh, One commentator, James Dunn, is helpful. Those who, on the one hand, wish to criticize Paul and the first Christians for such conformity to the surrounding culture should recall that it's only within the last hundred years of European civilization that the perception of the status of wives and women and their expected roles has been radically changed. He's saying we can't go back to this passage written almost 2,000 years ago and, and impose our modern sensibilities on it and, and you know, just criticize it for how it doesn't live up to that. At the same time, though, he goes on to say, those who, on the other hand, wish to draw normative patterns of conduct from Scripture passages like this cannot ignore the degree to which the instructions simply reflect current social patterns and inevitably conformist rather than transformist ethic. So he's saying here, This, even though there are timeless truths in these passages, we can't just take them one for one and import them into our modern life. In so so many ways, they reflected the culture in which they were written in. So our job is to kind of filter out what is, was culturally tied there versus what are eternal truths that we need to hold on to. And so instead of giving you a bunch of details, let me just lay out this picture of what I think it looks like. These commands, when put side by side, describe a husband and a wife coming together to craft a life together. And I think that's the key thing. It is two people becoming one. It's a husband who so loves his wife that her concerns become his, her worries become his, her well-being is his, her health is his. He cannot say, oh yeah, I'm doing good if his wife is doing poorly. And then it's a wife who willingly puts her heart and her well-being and even some of her autonomy into her husband's hands and says, I trust you with this. It's two people coming together to craft a life together that looks radically different than if you were just to stay single or even if you were just to move in together. It's not a husband who just demands his own way and his own dreams and is thankful to have a wife to take care of all the cooking and cleaning and kids so he can go off and do all the stuff he wants to do. It's not a wife who just cares about how much her husband earns so she can know and, you know, have a good life and pursue her hobbies and do all fun things she wants to do. It's not two people who think, well, hey, we can save on rent by moving in together, but we'll just live our own separate lives. It is two people coming together to alter the course of each other's life and to build something that, is, that multiplies through kids and blessings and is beautiful and looks way different than if you were just to stay on your own trajectory or just pull someone else into your trajectory. A husband and wife create their own trajectory as they come together and create a life that is so much bigger than if they were on their own. Well, let's look at how this works out in the home. This one will be a little bit shorter. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, when you're five or six or around there, 
you don't have a whole lot of choice to obey. Mom and dad can control that, you know, we can fairly well. And the commands are pretty simple, right? You can't play until you finish your dinner, or you can't go with your friends until you clean your room. But as you get older, right, those teenagers among us, maybe the preteens, the college students, this is where this command is more important because you discover there are rules that your parents have that you don't agree with. <laughs> and, and maybe there's rules that you think are silly or are too much, or why does my mom make me do this? I can't stand how she does this. Maybe there's rules that your parents have that seem way more strict <laughs> than the rules your friend's parents make for them. But listen to Paul's words. Children, obey your parents in everything. Not just the things that you can agree with, not just the things that you see other parents making rules about too, so you say, okay, I'll do that, but in everything, to honor our parents. Why? This pleases the Lord. You're showing them honor and respect. See, honor is when maybe there's something you don't really agree with. It's, it's, it's not sinful to do it, but you don't necessarily agree with it, but you do it out of respect for the other person. That's to honor them. And that's the posture children should take with our parents. And again, there's limits. If your parent is asking you to do something wrong or it goes against God's rules, then you shouldn't do it. But, but that's probably fairly rare. And then again, we have the complementary instruction. How do these things fit together? Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. This is addressed to fathers specifically. It's likely because in that time, children were considered property of their father. In Roman times, the father had almost unlimited power over his kids and over his household. And that word for embitter is used only one other place in the Bible, and it also means to make resentful. Parents, don't make your kids resentful. And in the context here, we can imagine a parent whose constant fault-finding or nitpicking or comments to their kids grow a resent in them where they don't want to, they, they, they just, what's mom going to say now? What's dad going to say now? Don't make your kids feel like they never measure up. Don't make them feel like they're inferior to another sibling. Don't force them in a particular mold that doesn't fit with their own desires and gifts, but more fits with your dreams for them. It's amazing how much a mom who makes critical comments about her daughter's looks can create insecurities that last for decades later. Or how a father who never praises his children's uh, you know, life or efforts can result in a son feeling like he's never done anything worthwhile and always failing his dad. We are called to love our kids, not to control them. And now the last area, harmony in work. Now slavery, again, <laughs> We see the, the long distance we have between when this was written in our, our day and age. Now, let's understand, what was slavery back then? Slavery was almost universally practiced in every culture around the globe, from Asia to Europe to Africa. And slaves often came from being captured in war. But it was also an ancient form of bankruptcy. And if you could not pay your bills to someone, you could either sell one of your kids off to slavery in, in order to pay off those bills, or you could sell yourself into slavery to pay your bills off. And stray children, orphans, were often captured uh, by bandits and sold into slavery as a way for them to make money. 
Slavery was not primarily racial. Often slaves were the same race as their masters. There was no way to identify a slave simply by their skin color or how they dressed. Slavery was a huge part of the ancient economy. In fact, majority of the ancient workforce was made up of various types of slaves. Now, most slaves were farmers, but that's what most people did back then. Most people were farmers. But slaves held all kinds of different jobs, from being weavers to wet nurses to kitchen help to clerks to secretaries to hairdressers to entertainers, midwives, teachers, managers. Many of Rome's artists, the potters, sculptors, and painters were slaves. Many of the best doctors in Rome were also slaves. So actually, as we look at this passage, we don't have slavery as it was practiced back then, but there's a lot of overlap between an employee today and what Paul is saying for the slaves back then. And now, when someone was a slave, they were considered the property of the owner, so that gave you a lot of control over their life, for good or for bad. But essentially, anyone here who's not your own boss, there are applications for your own life with what Paul is saying here. First, obey your earthly masters, and not just when they're watching. Christians should be the best employees. Christians should be known for being on time for work, working an honest day, not taking advantage of your employer, not fudging the numbers or changing things for your own benefit, Uh, not doing what is right when no one is looking. You, if you're a Christian, you should be one of the most trusted employees in your team. We should also be the people that managers want to hire and want to promote, want to give more responsibility to you, because they, as they look at Christians, they say, wow, this person is working and serving and honest and has an integrity that I don't see in the rest of these folks. This is the type of person I want working here. Christians should be known for that. And unfortunately, so often, we're not, or we just too much reflect the rest of the culture. So has being a Christian made you a better employee? Well, it should. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is Christ the Lord you are serving. Now, I wish I had more time to dive into this because this alone is just a remarkable statement. But this passage, this verse would have jumped out to those ancient readers because under Roman law, slaves could not have an inheritance. And here, Paul is saying, guess what? He rubs against the culture in this way. The world might not think you're worthy of an inheritance, but God does. And he has an inheritance in heaven waiting for you. What a great encouragement if you're stuck in a dead-end job. God sees your work. Do you realize that whatever your work is, that in the end, your boss is Jesus? And he stands above whoever your direct, you know, report is, who you're reporting to up the chain of command. Do you realize that whatever your work is, whether it's mundane or dramatic, it's a way in which you worship Jesus, whatever your work, whether it's nursing, software development, sales, construction, teacher, engineer, mom, whatever it might be, When you do a good job in your work, it brings joy to Jesus. So do you see your work 
as a way that you can worship God with the gifts that he's given you. And even if you have a bad boss or in a bad company, maybe you feel something like a modern slave, God is interested in your work. And he sees your work. And he delights when you're working hard at it, even when no one else notices, or even if you keep getting taken advantage of because you are working harder than everybody else. And God has reward for your hard work. In God's kingdom, there are no dead-end jobs because he sees it all and he delights in it. And then the compliment command for masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. If any of you are bosses or even manage others, Christians should make some of the best bosses. We should be fair and firm, honest. We should truly care about our employees. We should ensure that those below us are taken care of, sometimes even before we're taken care of. And don't think that you can get away with anything because God is watching you. I mean, what a shame for someone who's so willing to accept God's grace in their own life and yet not extend that grace to those underneath them. God will not let that continue forever. This is one of the tougher passages to preach, but it's good to wrestle with it, right? It's not good as a Christian to just pick and choose the parts of the Bible we like and we want to follow because we won't really be following the whole Christ. We'll just be following the parts of our culture that align with the Bible. To be transformed as Christians means conforming every corner of our life to Scripture. And there's a lot more I can say here. And if you have questions or are wrestling or wondering about any of this stuff, I'd be happy to talk to you more. I'm sure Pastor Wes, any of our elders would be happy to talk to you more and help you wrestle with these things and make sure you're understanding them correctly. And also, if you suspect someone is abusing their authority over you in some way, well, first off, know that God sees that. Maybe it never gets accounted for in this life, but God sees it. He knows exactly what's going on, and he will make it right. And at the same time, though, don't stay silent about these things. I mean, part of the church's role is to bring light into darkness, not cover them up and act like it's not a big deal. But hopefully, whatever your background is, you've gotten a glimpse of the beauty of the harmonious household that it becomes a source of joy where everything is working like a finely tuned bike. And when I'm riding that bike, I love it. Riding the bike becomes a source of worship. All the little gears and the chain and the, the, the true wheels are forming together to create a harmony of praise. Is your household a harmony of praise to God? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, because for every single one of us, myself included, there are areas in which gears are rubbing, where wheels are rubbing against brakes. Things aren't true. Things aren't aligned. So, Father, we ask that every one of us here, before thinking of other people or how they aren't doing these things, we pray that you would help us look at ourselves and have humility and want to live in harmony with you. Pray that you would comfort all of us. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.